You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Genesis 9, verses 18 through 10, 32. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it, both, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let, let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medeh, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephath, Togarmah, the son of Japhon, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Donan, Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Put, Egypt, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, Sabteca. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Calneh in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kaluhim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jeb- and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the, Hiv- the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the, Can- the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their, their nations. To Shem also, the father of all children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpaxad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpaxad fathered Shelah, Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber was born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazar Maveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abamael, Sheba, Ophir, Havila, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha to the direction of Shephar in the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these the nations spread abroad on the earth Oh, I flipped too fast. After the flood. All right, you can be seated. One of the privileges that I get as a pastor is, um, is I am af- often asked to do weddings or funerals, which are two of the most significant events that you can have in life, is uh, 
a, uh, a wedding or a funeral. And it's always kind of fascinating as, as you go in and you, get, you prepare for both of those services, either a funeral or a wedding, because those two events gather larger families. And in fact, in a wedding, you often have the merging of two families. And it's, it's fascinating for me to kind of get a chance to watch uh, the dynamics, the family dynamics that often come is you have a bunch of people gathered that aren't normally gathered, but they are on those days. And I love to try to find who is it that kind of knows what's going on and kind of ask them questions about, okay, tell me a little bit about the lay of the land of this family. Uh, I see various things going on. You see little groups and, you, you know, you all are part of families and know that some of the dynamics can sometimes be uh, interesting and different. And I love just kind of hearing some of the stories and someone saying, yeah, that that, that couple, you know, used to serve as missionaries and they were doing, you know, this. And then those two cousins, they're not talking to each other anymore because there's an event this, that happened. And um, those two were married, but then they divorced and now they've kind of reconciled. You just have all of these stories that give context to what you're seeing and experiencing. And uh, it's always fun to be kind of uh, get a front row seat to those things, especially at those particular moments. And we've got in, the sa- in, the, in our text here, we have kind of a similar thing going on is that uh, Moses has led the people out of Egypt and, uh, and God has moved on him to, to, um, to write down the family history. And so God, God has, is uh, leading Moses to write the first few books of the Bible, Genesis. And, and, and this is to give the backstory to the Hebrew people. Likewise, here in, in chapter 9, the people have come off the ark and uh, now there's only eight people in the world. And all of the families of the earth are going to come from these eight people. And we have a new Adam in a new world under a new covenant, and Noah and his three sons are the, um, are the, the, the start of a new humanity in the world. And so uh, as we look at our passage, we're going to divide it into two parts. One, as we look at this family and figure out kind of the family story and how Israel fits into this, God's people, um, we're going to look in Genesis 9, 20, 18 through 28. We're going to see that there's a sin in the vineyard. A sin in the vineyard. And then secondly, we'll look at 10 through 32, the table of the nations, a table of the nations. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of follow along. We'll have kind of two parts, sin in the vineyard, and then table of nations. So let's look at verse 18 of chapter 9 and get the lay of the land for this big human family and get the sense of like how this thing got started after Noah and his family walked off the ark. The sons of Noah went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So we see here an explanation that all of humanity comes from this family. This sets up an explanation for why so many nations. And ultimately, this narrative is to get us to chapter 12, where we get to the story of Abraham. We get to the story of God's promise and his covenant with Abraham. We had this covenant with Noah last week, and now the narrative is trying to fast forward us to the point where now we're going to see the next covenant with Abraham. And uh, this is is where that uh, fast forwarding starts. Uh, So all the people come from these three sons. This is bookended in 1032. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So all of humanity comes from this one family. And we're going to get a little bit of a description of how that happens. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. We, we saw this a little bit last week when God renewed the covenant to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, so we're, we're meant to see a connection between the original creation and then the decreation and new creation through the flood. And now we have a little bit of some parallels with Genesis 3. Adam and Eve fell, even though they were in a perfect garden, they were under a covenant with God. And now we're beginning to see that this new family with righteous Noah and his sons, we're beginning, we're going to see here in this story that there's a sin in the vineyard. There was a sin in the garden in chapter 3. And now we see a parallel that now there's a sin in a vineyard. It says that Noah is a man of the soil. That that parallels almost exactly where it says that Adam was a man of the earth. So humanity is still fundamentally the same. Noah is like this new Adam. And uh, we have a vineyard as opposed to a garden in chapter 3. We see that Noah is righteous in obedience in God's sight. Adam and Eve were created good. We have a man of the ground. 
uh, planted a vineyard, takes of the fruit. We see in, in Genesis 3, they take from the fruit and they eat it. Here we have taking from the fruit in drink. And we have an exposing. We have an, a nakedness that now is revealed. So there is some parallels. They're not exactly the same, but there are some parallels between Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind and the episode that we're going to see, this exposing of nakedness, this shameful nakedness, this sin in the garden, uh, or this sin in the vineyard. And we're meant to kind of see this parallel. We're meant to see this parallel that this new humanity that's emerged from the ark isn't ultimately that much better than the humanity that was just cleansed from the earth. The world was cleansed of sin, and Noah and his, and his family comes through that, but the sin of the world is still in this human, human race. And so sin is still in the wor- world. It is, just now, it is now in this little family. And so I want to ask just a few questions of this particular section of the text. One question is, is did Noah sin? Did Noah sin? Some say no, because there's no moral judgment rendered here. Maybe it's accidental. Maybe fermentation of the, of the fruit is a new phenomenon, and this was sort of an accidental uh, drunkenness. Some say that because we just, we just don't know. There's not a judgment rendered there. Some say yes on the fact that you know Noah's old. He's not new to the world. He's 600 years old. And by the time this event happens, his youngest son already has four sons. So they've been off the ark, off the ark long enough to sort of get their bearings a bit. And so some say, yes, Noah does sin here. Drunkenness is never approved in the scriptures. And he's exposed his own nakedness, which is something that is not dignified or for something for him to do. And so some say no, some say yes. And we really don't know for sure. You could make a case for either way. Um, It's possible that, yes, if Noah does sin, this would be a a little bit similar to maybe the David thing. Whereas David is mighty when when it's public. He's mighty when something's required of him. But then in private, there's a vulnerability that maybe Noah now in kind of his vulnerability indulges himself a little bit and it sets up a problem, which if that's the case, we're not sure, but we we should keep in mind that that sometimes sin can get us in secret. Sometimes sin can get us when our guard is down. Sometimes we can feel, let our guard down in private and indulge ourselves in a way that really has bad ramifications down the line. So we don't know for sure, but I think we can take a bit of a lesson there to go that even the godliest of people need to be vigilant to protect themselves even in private. And sometimes it's good to be godly when people are watching, but not so godly or overindulgent in private. So maybe, but the focus of the text is really on the sin of Canaan, or sin of Ham and the curse on Canaan. Focus is really on the sin of Ham and the curse on Canaan. That's the focus of the text. So you can make a case either way. I kind of tend to lean towards maybe Noah being at least unwise, Maybe even he has committed some measure of sin. We don't, we're not sure. But the focus of the text is the sin of Ham, which is in verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, this is now the second time that we've seen Cain referenced, or not Cain, uh, Ham referenced as the father of Canaan. Uh, so that's meant to point something out to us. Moses, as he's writing this, is wanting us to keep our eyes on Canaan. That's, that's the point of this story is to get to what is this Canaanite, this Canaanite people, what's the deal here? And he's telling us this story to, to help us understand who the Canaanites are and why, um, why they're under this particular curse of God. So Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Ham does two things that prompt a curse from Noah. And we see the destiny of the line of Canaan come out of this, uh, this event with Ham. So what does exactly does Ham do, and why does it result in such a massive curse? That's really our second question here, is uh, what exactly does Ham do? It's described as he saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So it seems to be a twofold violation, a twofold sin. What exactly does this mean? Some would say that saw the nakedness of his father is euphemistic of something a bit more weird. Sinful, gross, wicked. Some say that maybe this is some sort of inappropriate relations with his father. Sometimes uncovering the nakedness of can refer to someone's family member. So maybe, maybe uh, Ham had some sort of relationships with his mother. Some have even suggested that maybe he's castrated his father. That this is somehow a euphemism for something far more sinister because the curse is so severe 
But I think the response of his other two brothers shows us a little bit more of what the violation actually was. Because his brothers remedy the situation. Shem and Japheth respond to this issue of their father being drunk in his tent, uncovered. They respond in the way that Ham should have responded. And, and look at how they respond. This should tell us that maybe this is not euphemistic of anything more weird. But look at verse 23. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So, so that's meant to give us some understanding of what Ham's was. Ham saw his father's nakedness. And it says that when they took a garment, it literally could be translated the garment. So it looks like maybe Ham voyeuristically looked at his father in this vulnerable position, actually took the garment that wasn't covering him, but took it, and then went to his brothers and looked at, look at dad. The, the equivalent would be of taking your smartphone and snapping some pictures and video and publicizing it, which you can now see like you go, okay, well, that's a pretty big deal, Right? He's just let the rest of humanity know, which is not that many people yet. He's just let the rest of humanity know about the shame of their father, their righteous father. The one that has been blessed by God. And they've been blessed by God under this new covenant. So while to us, this kind of, this kind of like, well, he tattled on his dad, he kind of made fun of his dad. Well, that's not such a big deal. Well, I think that's just because we're so used to that. We're so used to loving scandal loving dishonor, loving hearing some juicy gossip about someone. I think the fact that maybe we are tend to think that this is not that big of a sin says more about us and our comfort level and the, the culture that we swim in where we love dishonor. We love to broadcast the sins and failures of others. And so he's dishonoring his father and in this time, there was a great respect for the elders and for your father. So this is a deep violation where he should have come in and covered his father, where he should have come in and, and not made this a big deal. He should, have, he should have looked out for his father. He should have covered his father's nakedness. He instead makes it a mockery. And he loves the fact that he's got some information that not everyone else knows and he goes and shares it. And Shem and Japheth respond righteously and they take the garment and they walk in so carefully because they honor their father. And they want to make a covering for their father's nakedness. So in one sense, Ham is like the serpent. He is the one who wants to expose shamefully the nakedness of humanity. That's what the serpent did to Adam and Eve, right? He deceived them. He, he took advantage of them. He lied to them and made a mockery of them exposing their own nakedness. And Shem and Japheth are a bit like God. God made coverings for Adam and Eve to cover their nakedness. He made a provision to cover them, and so we see Shem and Japheth responding like God does when something is exposed, when this nakedness and shame of their father. And so we see this Genesis 3.15 connection that there's a seed of a woman there's a seed of the serpent. There's a godly line in humanity and there is an evil line in humanity. And those two are going to be contrasted throughout the book, throughout the Bible, throughout history. Those who dishonor and love to uncover nakedness, who love to make a mockery of people voyeuristically, and there will be those who will be marked by godliness, who will seek to cover, not in a, not in a cover-up kind of way, but in an honoring kind of way. And so we see that these two lines, we're going to see that the line of the serpent is going to go through Ham. Ham is going to be representative of those who are resistant. His, and so here, here's what's interesting. So, so Ham is acting serpent-like. Shem and, and Japheth are acting God-like in terms of how they respond to this situation with their father. So look at verse 24. When Noah woke up from his wine... And knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, cursed be Canaan. That's not what you would expect, is it? Ham committed the sin. Canaan gets the curse. He said, cursed be Canaan. 
A servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, we have a lot packed into this oracle. This is a prophetic oracle. These are the only words we have recorded of Noah, is, these, is this oracle. And it's a prophetic oracle that tells us a whole lot about how the rest of the Bible is going to go. So I want to unpack this for you because this is phenomenal when you kind of pull this apart and look at how this plays out through the scriptures. Um, there's so much in this. So why curse Canaan and not Ham? Why curse Canaan and not Ham? Why? This doesn't seem fair, does it? Ham committed the sin. Why is it his son that's receiving the curse? Some wonder, you know, some of the explanations that have been made for why Noah would curse Canaan and not Ham is one, Noah is not, does not feel comfortable cursing something God has blessed. Back earlier in chapter 9, God placed a special blessing on Noah and his sons. That's, that's said, I think, two or three times earlier in chapter 9, where they're the recipients as representatives of humanity. And so Noah is unwilling to curse what God has blessed. I think that's possible. So therefore, he's going to curse the next one down. Perhaps Noah is cursing Canaan instead of Ham because he's the youngest son. And since his youngest son dishonored him, your youngest son is going to receive the curse. So maybe it's sort of a youngest for youngest kind of thing. Perhaps it's because Canaan is, is already, as a young man, as a grandson, is beginning to show the characteristics of his father Ham. And we don't have that in the text, but perhaps... The sin of Ham, the, the love for voyeurism and gossip and dishonor and disrespect, maybe that's already showing up. The attitude of Ham is already showing up, showing up in Canaan, and so Noah's going to curse Canaan. The, basically, I think the bottom line is, is that there's a prophecy and a destiny being declared here that I think is maybe a little bit hard to kind of wrap our minds around. Maybe it's all of these things put together. Ultimately, we're not exactly sure other than the fact that we're going to see this curse carried out in terms of the Canaanites. You've heard the words of the Canaanites before, right? The word Canaanites, they're going to be the ones that the Israelites have to go and conquer to enter into the promised land. The Canaanites are going to be in the way. They're going to be resistant to God. And I think this oracle is preparing them for the fact that the Canaanites are going to be in your way. They're going to be the resistance in terms of you receiving the promises that God intends for you to give. And so, ultimately, this is a prophecy of the destiny of the people within this line. Not a curse entirely on all of Ham, but on Canaan in particular, because God's plan is going to play out in this way. Okay? Shem will be the one whom God is glorified through. So now we get this indication here, because he says, Blessed be the Lord the God of Shem. So the blessing goes to God, not Shem. But it's the God of Shem, which I think is an indicator that the seed of the woman is going to go through Shem and God is going to be glorified in a particular special way through the descendants of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Okay, So this is a prophecy of what's going to happen. This whole sin in the vineyard is used by God to show both this new humanity is still just as corrupt and also to give a quick snapshot, a movie trailer, of how the Old Testament's going to play out. And this whole Canaanite group of people is going to be particularly difficult to deal with for the godly descendants of Shem as they receive this special blessing from God to be a blessing to God and ultimately to all the nations. So we have an interesting phrase. In verse 25, it says, Canaan will be a servant of servants to Shem. Now, that could mean that he's just going to be the most servanted. Sometimes you see that the Holy of Holies, the Prince of, uh, not Prince of Peace, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, as sort of like the highest of something. Also, it could be that servant of servants means that the Canaanites are going to become subservient to those who were slaves. That God delivers his people out of Egypt and the Israelite people are known as slaves. And they're going to go and they're going to conquer the Canaanites and make them the slaves. And so they're going to be literally slave of slaves. Canaan will be a slave of slaves. Could be that there's a little bit of an indication in there that, that Shem, this line of the scholarly line of Shem, will themselves be slaves. And the Canaanites will be slave of slaves. Or they're just the most enslaved 
of the people. This is foreshadowing the exodus and conquest of the nation. Um, um, Exodus uh, from slavery for the Israelites and then them going into the promised land. And just think about this. Moses and the people who are in the desert are now beginning to get a context for going, why are the Canaanites there and why are they in our way and why are they so resistant to God? Well, you can go back to the story of Noah where Noah's, Noah's oracle gives some expectations to what the future will hold in God's redemptive plan. Verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The word Japheth actually literally means enlarge. So I, I think this is going to be a large people. This is going to be a large people. And then we have this interesting little phrase, let him dwell in the tents of Shem. So while the, the, the Canaanites becoming the slaves of the Shemites, I think is, is Joshua the story of Joshua, the conquest into the promised land. This is prophesying that. There doesn't seem to be in Scripture a clear picture or fulfillment where the Japhethites come and dwell within the, in the tents of the Shemites. If you zoom out in terms of your whole Bible, the idea of the Gentiles being included with the promised people of God is something you see fulfilled in Acts 14.27. Paul and Barnabas go back to Antioch after their mission trip among the Gentile people. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared that, all, that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So, this could be, I think maybe is, a prophecy that the, the, the dwelling place of Shem will be the place where God brings all nations in. So the people of Israel will bring forth the seed of the woman that will then come and be the blessing of all nations. I think this is a prophecy about the expanse of the gospel of God making one new humanity that God's going to bring them in. It's just in its very smallest possible um, promise right here. But I think it's an indication that the, the, the tent of Shem, the promised one, the Christ himself, the new humanity is going to come through this line and it's going to be for all people. And so even in this text, we see a picture of what is going to result in Jesus. That those who are not receivers of the original promise of the line of Shem will be brought into the tent. Will be brought into the tent of Shem. And I think that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So bottom line for this, sex, this first section is that sin, the sin problem still remains. So a flood wiped out everything, right? All of the bad people were taken away and all you have left is the good people. If we could just get rid of all the bad people in the world and it was just you and your awesome family, the world would be perfect, right? Well, we have in the scriptures where that was tried, where that happened, all the bad people are taken out and all you've got is this one righteous family. No internet, no governments, no bad influences, and guess what's still in this family? Sin. Let us not buy into the lie that if we could just get all of those things out there fixed, we wouldn't have a problem anymore. The problem's in our house. It's in our home. It's in our hearts. So the sin problem still remains, even in one righteous family, with every advantage, a new covenant from God, and sin is still there. No matter how isolated or separatistic we got, our main problem would still be with us, which is our sinful heart before God. All of the sin problem comes from, is descendant from this family, from Adam first, and Noah and his family also. Sin problem still exists. Also, like we talked earlier, in the quiet moments when no one is watching, sometimes that can lead to the biggest failures, the biggest falls. We see in this text also that small events can change the world, right? This is a relatively small event, and yet it set the course and the destiny for humanity. Out of this sin in the vineyard comes forth this oracle, this prophecy, and so in some sense there are no small events, right? There are small events can affect the world for good or for bad. And we see that here in this relatively um, insignificant event from our perspective. This, this wouldn't even make the news, right, today. 
But even this small little event, this little sin in the vineyard, transforms the destinies of people under God's sovereignty. Also, I think we just need to think the sin of Ham is something we do all the time. Just think of the things you like to watch and listen to. Are they not somewhat voyeuristic? I love to hear when someone falls. I love to hear when something gets exposed. You know, and it's like, oh, is there something in us where we love that? You know, the, it's not the righteous things that people do that make the news, right? Why is that? Because no one's interested in that. We want, we want the kind of news that Ham projects, and we get what we want right? The media, the internet, all that stuff, they give us what we want. And they're just ham. You see what dad is like? Take a peek. See what happened? Look, I've got his coat. So I think we need to just think through, do, are, we, are we guilty of some of those same kind of voyeuristic, gossipy scandal? Do we have an appetite for that that is ungodly. I think it's all around us. The whole Bible and all of history is leading us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're seeing that here in this oracle of Noah. These things are still vague, but the arrow is pointing towards a fulfillment in Jesus Christ. This blessing that's going to come through Shem, the plan that God is working out, I think the bringing Japheth into Shem's tent is all pointing to the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ as being the remedy for what's going on. He's going to be the ultimate Adam, the ultimate Abel, the ultimate Seth, the ultimate Noah, the ultimate Shem. I mean, God is connecting the dots. You remember like in the restaurant when you had those like numbers, you connect the dots and you get a picture. Well, these dots are starting to connect more and more throughout. And it's going to be a picture of Jesus and his cross and his resurrection and his kingdom that is being drawn here. And we see it already, another dot, another plot, another piece of the picture, another piece of the puzzle being put together in this oracle of Noah. And sometimes the plan of God appears in the most strange ways possible. Is this not a weird story to include? It's very strange, and God sometimes picks the strange things to show his plan, to display his glory. So if you're one of the strange people out there, take heart. God loves using the strange, the small, the seemingly insignificant. Why is this in the Bible? God loves to show his plan in the most unexpected places and to unveil his gospel through the most unusual means at times. And so we have this one righteous family sitting in the garden and we have this oracle that is pointing us, giving us some understanding. As we look at the family tree of humanity, we now have some stories. We now have a story. We have a prophecy. We have some indications of where this thing's going to go, which then brings us to the table of nations. Look at verse 1. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. So we have that fancy word again, toledot in Hebrew, which happens 10 times throughout the book of Genesis and really serves as kind of the chapter headings of the book of Genesis. They, they give us the framework. They're the spine that shows us that God is telling a story through human history. He's telling a story of His goodness and His grace and His glory, His promise, His blessing, and He's telling it through human genealogy. And so here we have another one of those markers. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now what's interesting about this particular genealogy is that this one is totally unique in human history or in ancient history. Because you almost always have a linear genealogy, and we've seen that, right? So-and-so is the father of so-and-so. Then he had other sons and daughters. And he had a son and other sons and daughters. And it's like it's tracing this linear line right up through. And yeah, there's kind of these other people that don't really matter to the story. This is a segmented genealogy in that every one of their sons is named. And so you see the tree branching out right in front of you. And that's unique. This is unique here. And there's an intentionality that's going on here. This segmented genealogy is to show you how the human race is going to spread in many nations. The intention of this genealogy is not just to trace one line back, but to show you the breadth and the width of humanity. All of humanity is going to come from these three sons. It never says that Noah has other sons and daughters. It says this is it. He had three sons, 
And all of humanity comes from these sons. And that's the overwhelming uh, impact of the text. And so there you go. That's what it looks like if you want to see it sort of graphed out. Uh, it's interesting. Um, it starts with the least significant son in terms of the Old Testament story, which is Japheth. You see Japheth. And Japheth plays the least role, the least significant role in terms of the story of the Old Testament. And so it's handled rather quickly. The, the Japhethites are the ones that head to the north. I think there's a little map there that sort of projects what direction each of these different human, human groups go. Japheth goes north and then spreads out. Ham goes south, Africa. And then Shem is the largely the Semitic people. And look where they all overlap. It's the promised land. When God gives Israel his promised land and puts his temple in the promised land, he's literally putting it the center of the earth so that they could be a witness to all nations. They're all spreading out from there and the place where they all overlap is going to be the place where God is going to declare his glory most clearly through a select group of people who are to be his witnesses in the world. And that's where Jesus is going to come, is right at the center of the world, so to speak. Right at the center of the world so that all will know and see the glory of God. So it starts with the least significant, Japheth. The second, which is Ham. Ham, and particularly his son Canaan, they're going to play a bit of the victim, or not the victim, the, um, the um, what's the word I'm looking for? Villain. They're going to play a bit of the villain um, in terms of Canaan and the Canaanites being the place where God's people are going to clash most dramatically with. And then center stage, I don't know if you've ever watched a golf tournament, and they get to the final hole, and all the other people, like, they finish putting out so that the leader, the winner, can be the last putt sunk and then get all the crowd and all the applause and everybody swarms them. It's kind of what's happening here. Japheth putts out. He's done. He's not going to play that big of a role in terms of the coming story. Ham, he's kind of the villain. He's the one who's going to be defeated. And, uh, and so his, he putts out next. And then center stage, this is meant to get our attention, is the line of Seth or Shem. Shem is to be the one that we have our eyes upon. And, and when you look at these names, we see persons, we see peoples, and we see places. We see persons, we see individual people names. We see peoples, whenever you have an ending of the word im, I am, im. Whenever a word ends with that, it's a plural. It's related to the people. So we have persons, we have peoples, and we have places. Some of these places are named after these sons, these descendants. So each one of these has much to tell the original audience and their descendants. This is like a map. This is like a Google map for them of going, yep, the, the, uh, this nation's over here, this city's up here, and you can, all, you can see it all in Genesis chapter 10. This would, been, would have been an amazing sort of cipher to help them understand the world they live in. This would give them a map. This would give them an explanation. This is, this is me at the reception of the wedding going, okay, tell me their story and tell me their story. You could double-click on any of these names and come up with a fascinating history down through the ages on each one of these. So this is just like, this is a, this is a table of nations, like a table of contents. You could click on any one of these and find amazing stories about each of these pe persons, peoples, and places that represents all of humanity. You look at Japheth, and he heads north. European, maybe Asian. Descendants of Ham head kind of south. Arabia, Africa. Descendants of Shem, the Semitic people. Shem, Shemite. So to be anti-Semitic is to be anti-Shem. Shemitic, Shem. That's where that term comes from. We have a couple of highlights in verses uh, 8 through 10. We have Nimrod, a descendant of Ham. And he's a mighty man, the founder of mighty Babylon and Assyria. It says he's a mighty man before the Lord, a hunter. And some say, there's some debate on what that means. Some would say that, is, that he's actually an adversary of God. A mighty man before God, against God. His name actually means let us rebel. So there's a good chance that maybe Nimrod is the one who sort of initiates the whole temple or Tower of Babel incident. He's a mighty city builder, Babylon. Um, and so it notes that he is, um, it notes him there. Um, we have Egypt, the Philistines, we have Canaan. 
Um, we have Sidon to Gerar. That's where those, these Canaanites land, which is the promised land that will come a, a little bit later. And then look at verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Eber, or Hebrew, Hebrew, Eber, Hebrew likely comes from this name. So you're looking at the Shemites, the, Semi, the Semitic people from the line of Shem. Go a few generations down and you've got the Ebers or the Hebrews. And then eventually we're going to get down to um, Israel. Later on in our study, we'll get to Israel and the nation of Israel. So you're talking about this lineage here. And you're seeing those different terms that are used there. And then Peleg is divided. His name literally means divided. And it probably happens during his lifetime when the Tower of Babel happens and the people are scattered all over the world. Moses is orienting these desert people, these people who have just left Egypt and like, what are we going to do? And where is this God taking us? They're completely vulnerable in the desert. They've got nothing but this God that they're still getting to know protecting them. And they're about to take on people that might be even scarier than the, than the Egyptians, the Canaanites. And so this text gives them an orientation on where they fit in God's plan and who these people they are running into are going to be about. This is giving them a sense of where they fit in the world. Notice how nations are described. Look at how peoples are, are, are categorized. In verse 5, it says, In their lands, each with his own language, by their clans and their nations. Jump down to verse 20. People are categorized by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Verse 31, they are categorized by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So their relationships, what family they come from, what place they reside in, what their language is, what their culture is like, and not one thing about the color of their skin being a category by which we are to separate people. Defining and categorizing people by skin color is not a biblical category. That's something we created. And actually, you can go back into our own American history. And the American slavery, chattel slavery, Christians were defending it by saying that God had put a curse on Ham. And therefore, it is right and good for us, the Japhethites, the white people, the Europeans to enslave the Hamites because God pronounced a curse on the Hamites. So it is right and good and okay to do that. That was defended for generations as a biblical reason that Christians could do the kind of slavery and mistreatment. They misused the Bible to do that. And it became about skin color over time. This enslavement of Africans. Now, that's a terrible reading of the Bible because God didn't curse Ham. He cursed Canaan. And that was related to the conquest coming in Joshua. Christians misread their Bibles for quite some time to mistreat people based on skin color. And they read the Bible in a way that would justify their own actions. And it's just wrong. So, let us read our Bibles carefully. And I, in our culture, we also have a desire, maybe even a good desire, to try to make some of those historic wrongs right. But in trying to make some of those historic wrongs right, there is a desire to misread the Bible a different way. And so we, I think as Christians, we need to be honest about the realities and injustices that have come from misreading the Bible and not repeat those. But we also need to refuse to misread our Bibles in a different way as some sort of corrective to that. Misreading the Bible never fixes anything, right? So these categories. The, ad, the answer to bad and destructive reading of the Bible is never to replace it with another bad and destructive reading of the Bible. Two wrongs don't make a right. Friends, Genesis 9 and 10 gives us the categories. It tells us why things went wrong. It shows us the fallout and the consequences. It gives us the appropriate categories to avoid further damage. And it's a giant arrow pointing to the one who can make all these things right. The one who does bring all nations together. So, friends, let's keep our cool. 
Let's read our Bibles really well and not fall into some of these bad ways of reading the Bible in order to justify our own bad behaviors. Let's be winsome ambassadors. Let's trust the king of time and generations and all nations. Here in Genesis 10, we have the who and the where of all the nations summarized. In the next text, in chapter 11, we're going to see the why and the how, which is the Tower of Babel. So we already have this idea of languages, people being split out and sent out and having their different languages. That hasn't been explained to us. That's going to be explained in chapter 11, how the languages come. So we're running ahead a little bit in terms of the narrative. Genesis chapter 11 next week is going to tell us how the languages and the dispersion actually happened, how all the nations happened. Lastly, here's where we're going to close. There are 70 names listed here. That 70 is not insignificant. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, has 72. I don't understand totally how that works, but 70 names, 7 and 10 are both seen as numbers of completion. And when you put them together, this is to, to, make, to give us the sense that this is all of humanity, this is all nations. This is written very carefully to tell us that this is the total number of humanity, this is the all of the nations, this is, this is meant to represent everybody. And what you notice, and when you get to the Gospel of Luke, this is where we're going to land, the Gospel of Luke depends so much on Genesis chapter 10. Let me give you two ways that Luke connects, um, Luke connects the story of Jesus to this table of nations. All these names that we couldn't, re- we couldn't <laughs> pronounce, that you skip over in your Bible reading because you don't think it really makes that much difference or matters that much, has massive significance to the gospel of Luke. Because look at how, G- how Jesus, making the case that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the fulfiller of all of the Old Testament promises. In Luke chapter 3, he takes the meticulous time to show that Genesis chapter 10 is in the background as a, 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 of Jesus. That if Jesus isn't a fulfillment that goes through Genesis chapter 10, he's not the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior of the world precisely because he fulfills and his lineage runs right through Genesis chapter 10 in exactly the right way. Exactly according to the oracle, exactly according to the table of nations. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment. The, uh, the, the stars align in Jesus, and, Noah's, and, and Luke is going to point that out. Look at Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years old, being the son of Joseph, the son of Heli. And then he lists name after name after name. I'm not going to go through that again. And then in Luke 35, 38, the son of Sereg, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, the son of God. The son of God. So Luke, when he's writing his gospel to try to, com- try to convince people that Jesus really is the Christ, the son of God, he's like, I have to tell them about Genesis 10. If they don't see this genealogy, they're going to miss how glorious Jesus is. Jesus is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 10. And in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24, if you have a Bible, turn there. Remember, there's 70 names, 70 nations listed in Genesis chapter 10. We already know that Luke is being very careful to do his research to show the connections of the Old Testament to Jesus. And in Luke chapter 10, and this the Lord appointed 72 others. If you have a little footnote, some of the manuscripts say 70. Remember that according to the Septuagint, there were 72 nations in Genesis chapter 10. In the Hebrew, it's 70. The fact that we have two variants here is a strong indication that when Jesus is sending out the 70, we're meant to see a connection with Genesis 10. The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead, two by two, and into every town and place that he himself was about to go. So the mission of Jesus is going to be a mission for all nations. The 70 here is likely a connection to this 70. And here he says to them, 
The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his field. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whether, Whatever house you enter, first say peace on this house. And if a son of peace is not there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide for. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house wherever you enter a town and they receive you. Eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it. Say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever you enter, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to your, our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of Sodom for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will be exalted in heaven, and you shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Even the demons are subject to, your, to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and shall nothing hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So it seems like from multiple commentators that I read that there's a connection here. That Jesus is starting a mission. He's going to send with a message that's going to go to all nations. We see that in Matthew 28. We see that in Revelation that this table of nations is, a, is meant to be brought in, is meant to be gone after. We're to learn the languages and take the gospel to them in, in, their, in their languages. And so the mission of Jesus Christ is for all of the nations, all of the descendants of those who are in Genesis chapter 10, which is for you. The message of Jesus is for you. And so... Repent and believe the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. He's the fulfillment of the promise and he is going after the nations. May we also go after the nations as well. Let's pray. God, thank you for this, your word. Um, uh, A strange word in many ways, something that not typically where we would go um, in our own personal Bible reading, God, but rich and full of the important Um, categories and um, names that we need to know to understand the rest of our Bibles. So God, we thank you for this and we thank you that it all points to Jesus Christ, that you are working a plan um, from, uh, from the beginning and to the end to bring all nations to yourself through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for this and we pray that you would help us to trust in you, help us to find our place in your plan. And uh, God, we, we thank you that you are the God who is working all things for good. In Jesus name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.